welcome to Level with Emily Reese. This is music by Marty O'Donnell for Golem from Highwire Games. It's been way too long since we've had new music from him, due in large part to his change from Bungie and all the big AAA-ness that comes with that, to an indie VR game studio. Marty's music for the Halo series and for Destiny is often, like, really high-intensity music with a lot of musicians, like maybe a giant orchestra, extra percussion, layers of electronics, synths, loads of brass. Golem is not like that, and you'll get to hear a lot of music from the game in this episode. One thing, though, you'll definitely hear trumpet at one point in the music, even after we both agreed that the only brass in this music was horn, or French horn, as some say. And also, the actual game isn't even out yet, uh, but Marty and the team really wanted to release an album of music before that happened. Marty explains why. The first time we thought about uh, doing music and releasing music before a game came out was for Destiny, and we did um, Music of the Spheres. And unfortunately, <laughs> that never was released. Uh, a lot of that music ended up being in Destiny, and a lot of people have heard the majority of that music, but the actual sort of standalone musical prequel never was released. I, I'm, one of these days, I hope it does get released. But uh, when Jamie Griesmer and I decided to... Uh, you know, join forces and see if we could start a little independent studio along with Jared Noftel, so who's our engineering lead. So the three of us were together and we were just talking about crazy ideas and stuff to do. And Jamie was the first thing he said was like, Marty, you should do another you should do a prequel album and actually release it this time. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, we at that point we didn't know what Golem was going to be about, and it just seemed like, well, that'd be a good idea. Let's let's see. And I and I said, but this time I want to make sure I have control over it, so I can release it, and uh, no one can tell me no. Mm-hmm, <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so when that's you started, the impetus for it. Yeah, yeah. I don't mean to interrupt you, but when oh, the okay. three of you started, you you basically literally just knew you wanted to make a game together, but you didn't even know what the game was going to be like. No, we did not know. As a matter of fact, we spent uh, the only thing we knew was we thought it would be interesting with a small team um, and and independent developers who had some real experience. But we thought it might be fun to to explore the new technology of VR. So we we really thought doing something in VR would be um, a cool thing to do. So that's about the only thing we knew is that let's do something in VR. Uh, Jamie, being a genius game designer, he came up with just tons of different ideas for ways of controlling things and hmm. game environments that would work well in VR. And we pitched them to a, a few companies and Sony was very interested. So we immediately got a, or very soon after we got together, we got a uh, contract with Sony to, to work on the PlayStation VR. had the opportunity at all to work in, on, on VR before this? No, not at all. Yeah. No. Because, I no. mean, you were I mean, working on such we, big games that, that right. weren't VR games. Right. 
As a matter of fact, when we first got together, it's almost been, it's been over two years that we, when we got together to work and decided to work in VR. So we were actually in 2015, even 2014, we were starting to talk about working together and, and trying VR. And, you know, the technology was very, very young. And, mm-hmm. you know, I remember Jason Rubin just had just come into uh, Oculus. And Jason is someone I've known for a long time. And he and I talked about what the opportunities were. And it was, it was just very new. Nobody knew how to get anything going. And uh, Jamie had some good connections with PlayStation and Sony. And so we were there right at the beginning. So we were, we were doing prototypes and, and experimenting with VR before there was anything publicly released. is the game like? You know, the game is, its has a very sort of magical feeling, but it's also rooted in a small number of characters. There's siblings, there's father, there's a mother. They, they, they live in a, a village someplace that's not on our planet, basically. But if it were to look and feel like anything, it might look like the deserts in... Afghanistan or something like that. But there's, you know, magic and ancient uh, endless city that is has been closed up due to magical wars that happened deep in the past. But it's really about the adventure of you, uh, the youngest sibling, and what it's like to live in this time and find out that you can actually control with your mind <laughs> – you can control golems, and golems are from as little as a little handmade doll that you you walk around in when you're in your bedroom, or uh, a twenty foot tall stone giant with a huge sword that you use to to explore and go into the city. So you're always looking through the eyes of a creature called a golem, and you're okay. controlling that golem. So it was an idea that was born out of the idea that. Um, when you're playing in VR, you're sitting on your couch and somehow you're controlling this thing that feels real, but it's not 100% real. You, you can't have everything be perfectly one-to-one. So we thought it would be interesting to have the fiction be that you are sort of stuck as a person in your bed because you've had an injury to your legs. But you have this magic ability to control dolls and, and golems, and then you see the world through their eyes. textures that you used, lots of strings, uh, lots of solo piano, piano with the strings, but mm-hmm. also some woodwinds, and I, I'm pretty sure the only brass I heard was horns. I could have, you know, whatever, I could be wrong, but um, talk to me no, about... you're correct. Yeah, so talk to me about uh, that sound world that you created, because it's, it's lovely. Well, thank you very much. I, uh, it's one of those things where I kept thinking about 
starting brand new, blank sheet of paper, brand new story, and a new feeling. And I sort of just decided I wanted to limit myself in a couple of ways. I wanted to not rely on big bashing percussion. There's no no percussion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I didn't want to rely on big brass sections either. So it's like I felt like I really wanted to tell a story with a, a more intimate sort of sound, which was chamber orchestra. Although the strings get, you know, they're they're pretty thick at times. But um, chamber orchestra, piano, harp, and uh, winds. And for me, in this context, when I use horns, they're really part of the wood, woodwind section. Yeah. That's an interesting thing that people might not know, that a French horn can fit in very well with both families of instruments. And so in a woodwind quintet, there's always a French horn, exactly. which is you know, kind of surprising to people. But that's, mm-hmm. yeah, that's a very beautiful addition to that family of instruments for sure. Yeah. They are such sort of chameleons. They can fit in and they can give you beautiful sustained chords that meld with strings, meld with woodwinds. They can really just sort of glue things together. And especially when you're playing the piano and you have the pedal out uh, down, the, the uh, damper pedal, so it opens all the strings, so you have resonant frequencies ringing. Mm-hmm. To get the orchestra to give you that same sort of thickness of color that you could get automatically just by having the pedal on, on the piano. The horns just help do that. I can I could use horns to fill in some of those sonorities. is, you know, regarding the theme, a lot of times you hear like a a sharp 11 or, you know, Lydian scale. Those are two Mm -hmm. words for that, right? Uh, Right. In in fantasy music. And you definitely have that in there. But what I love about the theme is that you kind of hang out on that major seven a lot. Mm -hmm. And and Mm -hmm. that's such a... um, Oh, I had the word and uh, and I lost (laughs) it. But it's kind of an innocent quality to it. So tell me a little bit about constructing the the main theme and how you came about that. I had gotten my master's degree uh, from USC many years ago, <laughs> and my first daughter was on the way. And um, she was born, and I left the hospital, and I had to do some work at a, to, to paint this. Believe it or not, I was painting a, a nunnery. <laughs> <laughs> I was inside this school with that was it was all nuns and and stuff. But anyways, I was inside the one of the main chapels there, and and I was hired to paint it. And there was a a, a nice grand piano over in the corner. And I was by myself, and I I just sat down and immediately played the opening lines to this lullaby that it just felt like a lullaby for my new daughter. So that's what I did. I wrote that down and just had it sitting sitting there for years decades. And when I started describing the story to my wife and talking about how it would be neat to have like the sound of a mother humming a lullaby, she says, oh, you should pull that lullaby out. (laughs) So is that what that is? That's exactly what that is. 
Wow. And of course, I'd never orchestrated it. I'd never even recorded it or played it on piano. It was, uh, it was something that was just set aside. So if you notice in the CD liner, there's a picture of a some handwritten music that says lullaby. And that is actually my daughter's rendition of the sheet music that got there was only one copy of this music, and it got burned in 1999 in the fire we had. Oh, and so she made this, her own version of it, it's an acoustic, and it's a nice thing that I have sitting on my shelf, and it's a little work of art. And I thought, well, I have to, I need to do that. I need to put that in there. What was it like then to revisit that melody and end up orchestrating it and getting it down on paper as such? Well, um, the first thing was I, I had to find it, <laughs> and I did. <laughs> but I, I had no, I knew like the very, very beginning part. So I had for the Golem trailer that we did a, a couple of years ago, I just brought my wife in and said, here, hum this melody, and I'll play piano along with you. And then I went, put some strings and some other stuff on it and we had a trailer and it, it occurred to me that that I should go ahead and revisit the entire piece and then I played it on piano and at first it was going to be well I'll play it on piano and then I'll bring some strings in here and just sort of color it up but I kept enjoying the piano version by itself yeah. and I know that there's there's just not a lot of solo piano just hanging around movies and, and uh, games and so I thought, well, you know, I'm going to do piano. And when I orchestrate it, I'm going to orchestrate that particular piece without any piano. So I wasn't really thinking I would put both pieces on the album, but they both sort of hit you in different emotional ways. There's something about the orchestra playing it, and there's something about the piano solo. sound like the same piece and they're related and everything, but it just feels different. And I remember when I was studying orchestration back in my college days and studying very closely Mazorsky's Pictures at an Exhibition, <laughs> the piano version, and then listening to Ravel's orchestrated version. And it was it's it's a lesson in orchestration to to study Ravel's score.
music is so amazing from Mazorsky, but it, it has sort of a, it just strikes you so differently. Those are two different musical experiences. The, yeah. It's, it's not pic- like pictures at an exhibition is one thing. It's, it's very much two different things depending mm-hmm. on which version you're listening to. And mm-hmm. I've heard other orchestrated versions of it, of that, which I don't like, which right. are just not that good. So yeah. um, I thought, well, heck, I'm going to go ahead and let people sort of, if they want to, I mean, this is an album to be listened to. Um, you can sort of have pictures in your head as you're listening to it, but you won't have played the game most likely. Um, this is coming out before the game. It's for people who actually just enjoy listening to music, I hope, mm-hmm. and they'll have a musical experience. And then when they play the game, they'll already have some musical equity that they bring with them into the game rather than the other way around, which is the way it usually goes. The other thing I thought would be fun, especially for people who enjoy maybe understanding how music is put together, is for those people who want to actually, you know, listen and look at the piano score and then listen and, and look at the orchestrated version and understand, like, number one, how my mind works and mm-hmm. how interesting music is as you change the colors up. Is there any significance to, or is it just the fact that you liked both textures so much? Is there any significance in the in the game regarding solo piano versus orchestra? That's a great question because I wrote all this basically about a year ago. So I started the Kickstarter a year ago, whatever it was, February or something, and then I had to. I spent last summer basically writing this music. And then I finally got to record it here in, in uh, Seattle at Bastyr University in November. But the game was still, like, there was no music in the game at that point. We were just working on the raw game. Hmm. So as I'm putting music in the game now, it's interesting because there are, we've actually, because we had the music sort of ahead of time, there are things about the humming melody that are actually incorporated into some of our characters. I can have moments where there's just solo piano, but it's a, still a game. So you can't just suddenly play a seven minute long movement <laughs> in the middle of a game. <laughs> right. So, so I have, you know, it's like, it's, it's going together the way it is now. And I, you know, I realize, of course, there, I didn't really cover every kind of mood that you might end up having when you're playing a game. So I, I've written some more music that will be in the game too. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. I don't to the even though we're getting in down into our final weeks of production here, I don't know exactly everything that's going to be musically in the game. Sure. So there's already some solo piano in the game. There's already pieces that are will be recognizable to anybody that gets Echoes of the First Dreamer. Who 
did you record with? You said you were at Best Ear, but I'm curious, you know, about the performers. Well, I'm the pl- I'm playing the piano. Um, the Northwest Symphonia, I wondered, uh, yeah. conducted by David Sabe, and you know they've done just tons of scores uh, for games and film, and I've worked mm-hmm. with them for years, and they're really, really a blast to work with. And uh, it was nice because uh, you know it's a solo flute, a solo oboe, solo clarinet, still four French horns, but you know it's it's just has a smaller, more intimate feel to it. It was interesting too because I wanted it to, I didn't want to have them play to clicks. And of course, because they weren't playing, there was no picture or anything else. I wanted them to be able to, especially the conductor, I wanted him to be able to feel the phrases and elongate them and put formatas in between things in, in a way that just felt natural to the room that he's performing in. So the difficult part of that is how do you double up on that? Like we were able to get the strings by themselves and the woodwinds and brass by themselves, but they had to play with each other at some point. So you still need the conductor to be able to conduct again what he did. <laughs> so, so you get a really good performance you like, and then you spend some time when the musicians aren't there actually mapping the click to what they did so somebody else could come back in and perform on top of it. Wow. I like when music feels like it's live and breathing, mm-hmm. not metronomic. Uh, there's so much music out there right now, and you know, I just hear it's the easiest way to to make progress just to have a steady click and start chunking along. Yes, and that's only one way of doing music. And I hate the fact that the sort of the technology and production is causing people to always make that kind of music because it's leaving leaving yeah. out centuries of music making that always has rubato. Getting the opportunity to write something that's really sort of inspired by the story of the game, but as a standalone musical experience, means that I can work in a way that's just for the sake of the music. So I can have rubato and intimate phrases and dynamic range. I can do all those things. And, you know, we'll see how much of that's appropriate for the actual game. But at least it's a listening experience that, that people can have. So you're doing all the sound too, right? Yeah. I have a guy from DigiPen whose name is Ian, and uh, he was the valedictorian graduate of the music and audio department there that's at DigiPen here. And uh, I, t- I taught some classes there, and I, I said, Ian, I, I want you to work with me. So <laughs> Nice. Yeah, so I've got, a, I got one other guy who's doing a lot of work with me, but he's a 
it's special too. And it's interesting to work in VR because approaching audio from, from virtual reality is very, very different than I have approached audio in the past. Oh, I'm sure. And and I want to talk about that in, in a second as well. But I'm curious, I mean, in some ways, I feel like I want to say you've come full circle going <laughs> back to, to, you know, just such a small team, but it's so different, isn't it? I mean, it just can't, you can't even compare this experience to, I don't know, how do you feel about that? So at first it was like, just amazingly refreshing. Um, you know, when when I first started in games 20 years ago and I introduced myself to the Bungie guys, there were, you know, 18, 23 people. I don't know. It was just a small little can-do team in Chicago. And, you know, Mike Salvatore and I started working with these guys and um, it just slowly grew and grew and grew. The game industry grew coming out to Microsoft and having that big corporate entity sort of supporting everything you're trying to do. Over many years, all of a sudden, you know, the teams are 600 people, 700 people, and having the left hand know what the right hand's doing is just so hard, Mm -hmm. and to actually feel like you're making progress. And I I ended up having a team of uh, nine audio people, and I think we had seven audio studios, and I mean, it was just, it was such a big production to do anything. And of course, not everything was perfectly successful in my (laughs) endeavors with Bungie. And, uh, (laughs) but going back to, let's just, you know, Jamie is the same way. Jamie started with Bungie when he was just graduating from college in uh, 1998. So, or 99, someplace in there. Uh, so he's substantially younger than I am, but he he was with Bungie through all of its growth, and then he was also at uh, Sucker Punch, and he worked on uh, Second Son. And when when he left there, and he had left Bungie, and he left Sucker Punch, he was really looking for you know, I want to be in control of a project, I want to work with a few friends, and I want to see what we can do. Mm-hmm. So that was exciting. Now the mm-hmm. downside to that is you don't have the big corporate support, you don't have. Like, it's just you. That's why we call it high wire. It's a little dangerous. And if, you know, if things don't work out, then there's no safety net. So we're on the high wire without a net. the the sound and music aspects that you've um, I guess learned about and experimented with through this being VR. Yeah. Well, with VR, you have your you have a headset on your head, which is blocking out all of reality around you. You are in a virtual reality, right? So you have your eyes are completely covered up, and you're inside this other world, and you have headphones on which creates the audio environment for whatever world you're in. So 3D sound, HRTF, this is all extremely important. And you are, of course, turning your head to look at any sound you want to or any visual. So if if your sister walks over to your right, you look over to your right, and there she is, and she's talking to you. And you hear her on the right then, of course. Yes. 
And then when you turn your head towards her now, she sounds like she's right in front of you. If she walks behind you, she sounds like she's walking behind you. So all that stuff is very cool. But I've seen some people talking about how normal scored music doesn't work in these environments because somehow it'll take you out of the moment. But I, I sort of don't believe that's true, and I'm not working with it that way. So we don't have any what they call diegetic music in the game because other than actually your sister does hum and sing a little bit, so that's kind of fun. Mm -hmm. But, for example, if she starts to sing and then she gets done with a little melody she's doing and then the music comes in, she's sitting you know, on your left and singing something. But then when the scored music comes in, it's just stereo. It's stereo, and it doesn't move when you move your head. Because sure. then you would be looking, you'd be looking around going, where are those string players? <laughs> <laughs> like, you can understand, that's my sister, and she's over to my left, and I mm -hmm. can hear her singing to my left or behind me or whatever. But when the music comes in, it's, it's telling part of the story. So I think that still works. There's no reason why you, in my opinion, now we'll see, we'll see if people like it or not, but I think you can still have music that scores the emotional journey, even in VR. What's the release date for the game itself for Golem? When is that happening? We have not announced a release date okay. for the game itself yet. We we want people to be able to play this game as soon as possible, and we're oh, sure. we can start to see the light at the end of the tunnel. But we haven't actually announced an official release date, which okay. is kind of nice because we're uh, believe it or not we're self-published, even though we have a, a contract with Sony, mm -hmm. and Sony's been very nice about not forcing us to announce public release dates. As a matter of fact, a lot, I think uh, we haven't been in the press very much over the, over the last almost 12 months. We've been sort of quiet mm -hmm. uh, just because we're working really hard and we don't have, <laughs> we don't have a PR and marketing department. That's something sure. else you find. We don't yeah. even have a testing department. So I'm like, hey, Jamie, when are we, gonna, when are we hiring the testers to test this game? And he goes, <laughs> yeah, that's us. That's us, pal. So... <laughs> Like, oh my gosh. <laughs> so yeah. we're, we're all really understanding how much work really goes into making a game that has as many AAA sensibilities and production values as possible, but mm -hmm. is still an indie game made by a small team. It's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting period of time. Of course, you know, last year VR was supposed to be super big, and I think it wasn't that big. <laughs> <laughs> to say the least. Yeah, I think money has a lot to do with that. Yes, personally, yes. but yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And th I think that anybody who looked at it rationally would have seen that the install base and the user base is is completely a different level than you know the consoles and the PC put together. There's hundreds of millions of people that can play games that way. Yep. Whereas on VR, you're talking. How many people did I just say? Hundreds of millions? Yeah. Wow. Well, I guess it's sort of true. There's at least 70 million. I think there's 70 million PS4s out there. Wow. And there's 50 million Xbox Ones and there's Xbox One X. And I mean, Jeez. there's so many places. That, and, and so that means if you, 
if you make a title that can be can launch on those systems, uh, you have a much bigger install base to go into. But for VR, there is just not that many. I think Sony crossed the one million mark for PSVR. No kidding. And I think they've yeah, but they, that's the most that they've sold the most of anybody. So oh, wow. Vive and Oculus, and this is you know we're talking about the uh, the high end level of VR equipment. So you have to you have to, your expectations for recouping money and getting a return on investment and all of those things um, is just a a different level. You you can't have like you know the Ubisofts and the EAs and the Bungies and and all these people they're they're not touching VR really seriously yet because they just they have their teams are too big. Yeah, it's like uh, you know, like Ubisoft has done some much smaller VR projects, but nothing like you know an Assassin's Creed type or you know Far Cry in VR or anything like that. Yeah, you're right. They're really keeping it standard. Yeah, you can't justify the expense um, to and and getting the return on that, which is you know it's it's the beginning stages of a, of new technology, yeah. and uh, it's going to take a while to grow. thing I'm slightly nervous about, maybe you can allay my fears, or maybe not. Uh, <laughs> I know that there are people, probably fans and people who have enjoyed Halo and Destiny music out there who might have expectations that will not be necessarily fulfilled with Echoes of the First Dreamer. And it's, it is pretty unusual. There are some unusual pieces that might not be as comforting <laughs> to people who are expecting... <laughs> The big, the big banging, chugging cellos and so forth. So I'm just curious. Yeah. I mean, I, I wanted to make what I made, and I'm I'm happy with uh, what I wrote and produced. But uh, it's going to be interesting to see how the fans who might have other expectations take to it. Yeah, you know, I mean, I had those expectations when I started listening to it. And when I didn't hear that, I was thrilled. Not because I don't <laughs> love, I mean, your Halo music and your Destiny music is hands down some of my favorite ever. So it wasn't that I didn't, you know, want that at all. It, it was just like, oh my gosh, this is a side that, you know, we caught glimpses of for sure in in, in all of your music. You had mm. moments where you could, you know, kind of just stretch out orchestrally and, and you've done that throughout your career, but to just get to do this and... I don't know. I was. I thought it was. I thought it was great. And I. I oh, do think great. you know the the video game music fan base. They're so into just music. They just. They just into music. You know. Yeah. And, and that's yeah. what I love about it. Like they, to me, don't seem to care if it's completely atonal whatever horror music or if it's a chamber yeah. orchestra or if it's mm -hmm. a banjo and a harmonica like <laughs> they just they're so open to musical experiences and i personally don't think you have anything to worry about well well thanks i hope so <laughs>
it will be fun to start interacting with uh, the fans and fielding their questions and yeah. possible complaints about, you know, where's the timpanies and the giant toms and so forth. But yeah, um, yeah. yeah I mean, I, I just felt like I wanted to stretch. As, like I have lots of different parts of me uh, that I wasn't necessarily able to always focus on. Mm-hmm. And this gave me an opportunity to focus on something that was uh, a little bit different. And if it still sounds like me to you, then that's a good thing. So Oh, big time. Yeah, big okay. time. And uh, yeah, there were there were moments though where I could hear very much Americana, like mm-hmm. Copeland almost oh, so yes. in in like yes. voicings. You know, mm-hmm. you'd you'd have these really um, just open harmonies, but with lots of fourths and fifths, and mm-hmm. um, maybe one color tone like a seventh or something like that. And and I, I loved that. So tell me a little bit about about that because you said yes, yes when I said Copeland. Well, I uh, I can't divorce myself from the culture that I've you know been immersed in my whole life, and composers like. Samuel Barber and Copeland, and then going back to Debussy and Eric Satie and Ravel and stuff like that. I mm-hmm. these are these are I I have so much experience uh, just listening and loving and playing and and doing that stuff. When I went back to this lullaby, I, I looked at it and sort of felt like there was a, a sort of a Eric Satie feel to it, and um, I thought, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with that. And then there was a point, believe it or not, because that we're in the desert and it's it's like Afghanistan looking uh, where I was like, well, maybe sh- I should do ethnic instruments and do do things. And somehow I just never wanted to do that. And so yeah. I went to, there's a lot of open space and there's a lot of vistas. And I think that's where Copeland comes in. Cause somehow Copeland, it is, Amer- Copeland is Americana, no doubt about it, mm-hmm. but he's also he just gives you the feeling of open Nature. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I was po- possibly channeling Copeland and Satie. <laughs> Thanks for listening to episode 77 of Level with Emily Reese. You can learn more about Marty O'Donnell at martyodonnellmusic.com and see a playlist at patreon.com level. Since the game isn't out yet, Marty is in serious crunch mode, and we're thrilled he even took the time to speak with us. So he didn't have time to do the five songs, but we'll circle back around to him once the game is out and he can relax a little bit. I'm Emily Reese. Sam Keenan is our producer. Say hi, Sam. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Level with Emily and learn more about us at levelwithemily.com. Made possible by Adam Selvage at Tiki Web Services and Brad Gentle. Level with Emily Reese is a production of June Media Incorporated.